Welcome back to the Leadership Domain, where we believe that who is greater than why. I'm your host, John Roan, and we're here to share stories told by leaders themselves. Each episode is a glimpse into their who and serves to connect them with you, our listeners. We hope that their lessons, thoughts, and vulnerabilities also serve to unlock your full leadership potential. We're glad you're here with us. Lead them well. Welcome back to the Leadership Domain Podcast. This is the first episode of our second season. We truly appreciate all of the feedback we received from you during our first season and hope that season two is even more impactful. We're honored that you chose to spend some of your very few precious minutes with us. I'm pretty excited to have the guest that we have. So full disclosure, I had the opportunity to work for this leader as his group commander when he was my wing commander, uh, then Colonel Sean Choquette, now Brigadier General. Sean Choquette. Uh, he is uh, by far one of the most engaged and talented leaders I've ever had the chance to work with. And I'm not just saying this because we're here on a Saturday morning um, doing this since he's, uh, he was very busy at work this week. Uh, currently, General Choquette is the uh, Director of Operations at 12th Air Force out of davis Monthan Air Force Base in Arizona. Uh, as a component to U.S. Southern Command, uh, he's responsible for the operations uh, that they conduct, specifically focused on uh, security cooperation and then provides uh, airspace and cyber capabilities throughout Latin America uh, and the Caribbean. Another reason that General Choquette is such a great guy is his alma mater. I graduated in uh, 1993 from the Air Force Academy. And then here's where it gets a little strange. Uh, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army and uh, flew helicopters in the Army. Uh, we'll get through the rest of this this conversation today about some of the, the diversity in his, in his uh, career. Uh, he commanded at the company level in the Army, commanded at the squadron group and wing levels, uh, and then served on the normal staffs that you see general officers serve on, plus uh, a stint at the embassy in, in Baghdad. So, sir, uh, first off, thanks for the time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a leader and putting up with me for two years as uh, as your group commander. And I uh, thanks for the opportunity. And, and before we get started, what what is not in the bio? If somebody would pick up the bio and read what I just read, what else do you want them to know about the person you are today? Hey, big dog. Thanks. And first off, thanks for having me. It's exciting uh, to get to chat with you and exciting to talk about leadership. We're all um, as, as senior leaders in the Air Force and leaders at any level in the Air Force, I think just enjoy talking about this stuff and more importantly, having a conversation because you learn so much through the conversation. Uh, people have other things out there. And as you intimated, um, I have a, a pretty diverse career. And so I've learned a ton along the way through that forum, things that I've put into my kit bag. Uh, I guess the things that, uh, the thing that's not in the bio is the fact that, uh, you know, you read all those words, you read the jobs and the things. And I just feel like a guy who's been blessed and lucky to get where I am, a small town kid from Durango, Colorado, uh, that went to a high school and then just did the things that I was asked to do along the way. And that's how I feel about it. And uh, so I, uh, I always stress to folks, hey, just go out and do your best every day. And uh, I, I feel like that's what I did. And I, I get up in the morning and I'm a 50 year old guy who feels like a 25 year old lieutenant and wants to go out and, uh, you know, and, and destroy everything every day. Uh, and it's excited about the job, but it's just because I just get up every morning and keep on trucking. So um, I'm really excited uh, to chat with you about it and to share just experiences I've had along the way that can maybe help folks out. Before I go too far, it was yesterday or today, because you said 50, and I think that's a new term for you, right? Uh, is that today's your birthday? It is. It was yesterday. So um, 
I, I try to tell my kids all that means is I'm just halfway to perfect now, right? I'm halfway. There you go. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned perfect, so I'll jump in, and you mentioned your, your toolkit. One of the things that people often talk about when they see general officers walking around, especially general officers who uh, have been advanced a little faster than their peers, and they tend to think, you know what? I can't do that. That guy's been there because he's never made a mistake in his Air Force career. If I make a mistake, I'm done. So what do you say to those people that say, you know what, General Shaquet must have done it perfectly, never screwed up in his career? I would beg to differ right out the <laughs> gate. Uh, and I think like most folks, uh, we often learn best through our mistakes uh, because truly that's where uh, the magic happens. And you, and you turn around and say, well, what did I do wrong there? Uh, I have made plenty of mistakes along the way. In fact, some would argue uh, when you look at my biography, that all along the way, I've made all the wrong choices as far as where I've gone. Uh, and yet it's worked out. So uh, life to me, I'm a lifelong skier. I grew up skiing in the mountains of Colorado. And I always had the theory that if you don't fall when you're skiing, you're not trying hard enough. So you, you got to get a little bit outside your comfort zone. You got to stretch your boundaries. You got to max perform the jet and fall down and then get better. And that's how you improve. And it's the same, whether you're flying missions or whether you're leading a unit or whatever you're doing in life. So, um, I think along the way I've made plenty of mistakes, um, at every level, whether it was as a platoon leader, uh, or as a wing commander, and you probably got to witness some of those as a group commander. And then you, uh, you know, you dust yourself off, you stand back up and you keep on trucking. Uh, and, and again, those, those are the best lessons learned because they're hard earned and they're always remembered. Uh, and I try to uh, imbue that in my subordinate leaders and, and my peers as well. Um, I, I want you to make mistakes. Just yesterday we were talking, you know, the Air Force has an inspection system uh, that we go and, and you, every periodically you, you run through these checklists and you probably recall when we did this as a unit, I said, hey, I want you to run through these checklists and I don't care how good they look. I don't care how green they are. In fact, I want to see the red blocks, the blocks that indicate that we have some problems because we need to know where the warts are. We need to know where we're making mistakes or where we're not appropriately resourced so we can go out and get after it. If we don't recognize that, then we can't fix it. And the way you get the right culture when you're doing that is to not grade folks on finding what's wrong you grade them on finding it and then getting after it or not if we decide not to. Um, so I think mistakes are a mechanism to learn. So stretch, move, uh, and, and execute. There are two things I want to unpack and I'll try to make them uh, two separate questions. You mentioned that in, in skiing, if you, if you don't fall, you aren't trying hard enough. The Air Force is the force of innovation. We've all heard that. But there are people who feel that if I innovate and make a mistake because I'm trying so hard, I fumble the ball because I'm trying to break one more tackle. Now I've affected or impacted my stratification. So how do you reward the innovation? You can't innovate and also be perfect simultaneously. You can't innovate without mistakes. So how do you encourage innovation and then reward those mistakes when people fall and allow those to actually better their career uh, instead of being seen as something that could hurt it when it comes time to stratifications or evaluations? Now, that's a great question. And it's uh, an important one because that's part of the culture of getting at how to successfully lead a unit. And I think there's, there's two things, two issues there. 
Uh, one is the words, one is the actual guidance that you give to folks. And the second is the example that you set. Uh, and it's important to say the words, to tell folks, hey, I want you to innovate. I want you to, to move out. In, in, in my old army life, in army parlance, it's, you know, move out and draw fire, right? I want you to go out and start executing. So it's important to tell people that. And oftentimes, though, we as leaders say the words and people don't hear us. Or we as followers hear those words from our senior leaders and don't believe them. And, you know, I, I grew up as a wing commander when you and I worked together, uh, having a, a chief of staff of the Air Force and a commander of ACC who both said those words and said them often. In fact, the chief of staff often said, don't wait on me, move out and execute. And here's my verbal orders. And I want you to innovate. And I want you to get after these things. And people would hear the words, but not execute. In our unit, we were lucky enough to have the, the right team and the right group of folks with the right attitude and started doing that. And, and the other way that you move out or the way that you imbue those ideals is by example. So if you do it at your level and your subordinates see, hey, this man or woman is taking chances and making mistakes and falling down, I feel free to do that as well. And you need to reward that to your point. You know, you can't go write a fitness report or a, or a performance report on somebody and said, failed extremely well, you know, did a great job, fell out flat on his face. But you can go and recognize the efforts appropriately and give a really good stratification and rating to someone who did those things. And when people see you do that, it matters. You know, actions have to match with words. So when they see you promoting folks, moving them forward, putting in front of the group and recognizing all their hard work, despite the fact that uh, it wasn't fully successful or wasn't successful at all, but it moved the ball down the field and it was trying new things, um, that's important. That sends the message to your unit. It sends a message to your subordinate leaders that the boss isn't just saying these words, but he's embodying them. He believes them and he's going to rate and reward us appropriately. Uh, so I, I think you, again, send the message two ways. You say the words and you believe them and you lead by example in your actions. And uh, we have leaders in the Air Force now that are doing that. And I was blessed, like I said, to work for a couple of them. And uh, they gave me uh, enough rope to run and never said, stop, what are you doing? And as long as you're living in an environment like that, I think you can be at least marginally successful. I'm not sure if I ever told you this or if you noticed it, because by the time I was finishing my command, you were already getting ready to move out to the, to the desert. But one of the things, and I mention this a lot when I get an opportunity to go talk to people, one of the things that I I valued the most is when I used to send you emails, my emails oftentimes would be, unless otherwise directed, I'm going to do this or I intend to do this because of these reasons. And to me, success was always when you came back with TKS. Thanks. So to me, uh, you one trusted me, but I think more importantly is I trusted or what I thought, what I got out of your TKS was that the boss has got my back. So when I go screw this up, uh, I think, and I was very confident that the boss wasn't going to go to the two-star boss at the Warfare Center or even to Comac and say, hey, Big Dog screwed this one up. It was going to be, hey, here's what we did or here what I did as the wing commander, and here was the lesson that we got out of it, which, which is most important. So my point to that is the level of trust that we had, I think, in that organization was was unique. And I wouldn't have thought that when I was on active duty, but as I get a chance to go talk to people now, I always ask, who in this room trusts their senior leaders in the Air Force 100%.
And what breaks my heart a bit, and this is just full disclosure and transparency, is very few, if any, people raise their hand below the rank of E8, Chief Master Sergeant, or Colonel. So that being said, is that something that the general officers, the senior leaders in the Air Force are aware of? And if so, what do you think the biggest hurdle to that trust is? Yeah, I think it is an issue. And I think it's something that we all work on and deal with every day. And to your point of uh, top cover, you know, I, I, uh, I'm glad that you felt the way that I was hoping to communicate to you that I was, you know, I had your back and would cover you on whatever went down. And quite frankly, though, I didn't feel like I was taking a lot of risk there. Uh, because a, I, tr- I did trust you, right? That wasn't just something that I said, and I knew that you were a, a qualified and competent leader that was moving out smartly on what I intended for you to do. And B, I knew I had senior leadership that wanted us to do those things, so I didn't feel like I was taking a lot of risk, and, and was excited to have subordinate leaders that I had to rein in by uh, kicking the rear and keep moving out. Uh, so I, I, I'm glad that uh, that that was communicated. And it's important because people are only going to move out on those things if they feel like they're in a safe environment to do so. And then you, you know, going back to my army parlance, you give them mission, you give them intent and a little bit of rope and say, go, and then watch them uh, execute. And I think part of the way that you build that trust uh, is relationships. We're, we're in the relationship business. Uh, you know, we're, we're in a technical service, as you intimated earlier, but we're in a business where people win wars, people win fights, people fly jets, or at least some jets, some we don't these days. Um, but the way you build the trust in the organization is to communicate with them and, and build that relationship. And that takes time. And time is hard, especially as a senior leader. We get stuck behind our computers doing emails uh, or, or, or moving around the unit and talking to folks. But you have to take the time to communicate, whether it's in a big venue in an auditorium, or even better, just leadership by walking around and talking to your folks um, and building that relationship. I, I learned a lesson early on as a young uh, Army platoon leader and then a company commander, and I carried it on into my Air Force career, is when you first join a unit, you have to communicate with them you know, your, your vision, but you also have to allow the folks in the unit at different levels to get some wins to talk to them and say, hey, what are you guys trying to do? What are you trying to push across the finish line? And where can I help you as the senior leader? And and when they see not when they when they hear, when they don't just hear the words, but they see you help them get something across the finish line, you've now built trust, right? The boss really cares what we're doing. He's willing to put his energy and his resources behind us to get after something. And now that level of trust and respect is what you build upon. Uh, to go ahead and get those things done that you're talking about. Um, I, I think I, I can't overemphasize how important it is to build that type of relationship so that folks know that they matter, that you care. Um, and now when you give guidance, they're willing to move out on it with the level of trust that you're going to take care of them in the end. You said it, right? Relationships. It, it's hard, especially when we had a unit like we were in where we were geographically separated. The other word I want to hit on is you said safe. You mentioned safe environment. You can open up the Air Force Times and Military Times, and this just isn't just specific to the Air Force, and see an article on toxic leadership um, every single month. I think you've probably heard of what happened down at Fort Hood and the firing of, of dozens of leaders and what unfortunately um, uh, led to the, the murder of, of a young soldier and others. 
how do you think the Air Force is doing on identifying toxic leaders? And how do they get to a point where they are leading hundreds or thousands of airmen or soldiers or Marines? Yeah, I, I, I did hear and read about the story in Fort Hood. I'm very sad to hear that uh, anywhere in America, but especially in our military culture. Um, and I think that uh, the same principles that we're talking about apply here. And it's it's size and so, scope and scale, whether you're leading a, a section or a flight or a squadron or an air force uh, of setting expectations for your subordinate leaders and then uh, having them move out. And, and um, we have to be very careful about how we set expectations in providing the right environment, but also with the recognition that this is a military organization. So we have a chain of command, we have structured rules, we have expectations for leader subordinate relationships that have to be maintained in order to get after our mission. Uh, and, and so there's a, uh, there's a balance there. Uh, I, I think as a senior leader, um, to me, three things that, that we owe to our units and to our people, the three things that we can give to them, we can give them positive culture, we can give them a good environment and then the resourcing to get after their mission. There are three things as the, as the leader of a unit that we can provide or must provide to them. Uh, we have to set up a positive culture. We have to create a good environment and then provide the resources for them to get after their mission. And I think uh, you have to keep your eye on the ball with regards to all three of those. The, the, the other part of that is when you identify pieces of your organization that don't meet those appropriate standards, uh, you need to excise them from the organization. And we struggle there sometimes. It's hard because we believe and want the best uh, of people. And it's hard to recognize sometimes that there are those folks out there who not only don't perform well, but really have a significantly negative influence on our organization and can also be dangerous. So when you identify those folks, uh, you need to get them out. And, and part of uh, this also as a, a leader at any level, and especially as a senior level is you need to own your organization, not just the mission and the people, but that culture, it's yours. And so when there's a problem, you need to get engaged and involved uh, and take action and be a part of the solution. Just sitting back and hoping things get better uh, is, is not going to lead to success. So uh, folks have to recognize that we don't just own the successes and failures with regards to the mission. We own success and failure with regards to how our folks are taken care of and the culture environment that they live in. So when you see a problem, identify it, find some solutions and move out on it. Digging down into that just a little bit, especially when you are a a general officer or you're a wing commander with thousands of people or even hundreds of people under your command, you don't get to see the influencers of that culture every day. So how do you, as somebody, we'll call it the wing command level, the group command level, what lessons did you learn or have you learned that you can give to the younger commanders or the, the senior non-commissioned officers for how to identify an action and unsafe environment? What are some indicators that the environment is unsafe? or toxic? Sure. Um, 
you know, there are definitely some identifiers, and I'll talk about that, but I think part of it is uh, trusting your intuition, right? We can all walk into a room oftentimes and talk to somebody and recognize right out the gate that something's just not quite right. The nonverbals, the way they're talking, what the, what the room, the temperature of the room. So I, I would say number one to subordinate leaders, trust your intuition. It's there for a reason and it's gotten you this far somehow, some way. So continue to trust it. Uh, the second thing is I, I think there are some uh, simple performance indicators. You know, oftentimes when a unit is not performing at a high level, uh, it's because the culture and the environment that they have. And everybody, in my mind, comes into work every day wanting to be successful. There are very few people in life who walk in through the door at the job and say, let me see how I can. Mess how can I be toxic today? today right? That's right. That's right. And uh, so, you know. You have to take a look at how the unit's performing, and if it's uh, substandard, there's probably something going on there. If it's not resourcing, if it's not that they have the they don't have the time and the equipment and the technology and the things they need to make it happen, it's probably an attitude culture piece. So, so take a look at how they're performing and see how they can perform better. And most importantly, ask the question. Uh, going back to what we talked about, leadership by walking around, you'd be amazed what young airmen would tell you when you walk around into their spaces and ask questions uh, because quite often they're brutally honest. Uh, they have no equity in, in shielding their leaders from things uh, or, or making sure that they say the right words. They'll tell you exactly what they think and feel. And so uh, go out and talk to folks. And, and, and a second piece of that, and this is important, have a sensing grid uh, because you can't be everywhere at all times. And you talked about, you know, how do you talk to subordinate leaders? Because as a, as a wing commander or higher, you're not a leader of people so much as you're a leader of leaders. You have subordinate units that are running the mission and executing things. So you're not going to get out there and meet every airman. In fact, you'll probably be lucky to get out there and meet 50% of them. So you need to have a sensing grid of folks that are out there uh, receiving and bringing information. For me, oftentimes, it was my senior enlisted leaders, my command chief, uh, who would go out and walk around and talk to the young enlisted soldiers and come back to me and say, hey, sir, you know, this is going on in this part of the unit. I think we need to take a look at it. Uh, subordinate commanders, trusted agents, right? I just happen to have a, uh, a captain in my family now, a young captain in the Air Force, my son, who's a great part of my sensing grid because, you know, he's part of the younger generation in the Air Force and gives me a feel for what young leaders are thinking. And oh, by the way, they don't think like us. In fact, they think a lot different than we do, uh, and, and it's incumbent on us as senior leaders to understand their culture and how they think and what's important to them so that we can influence them. Uh, so I think those are just a, the couple of the tools that are out there uh, to get after sensing whether things are good, bad, or indifferent culturally in your unit. A quick aside, just not to derail this, but so how does how does he handle being the captain with his one-star dad walking around the base. Does he keep his head down? Is he stick his chest out? Does, do all of his buddies say, hey, go ask your dad this? Yeah, uh, I, I do not envy him being <laughs> in that position, and I oftentimes feel bad for putting him in that position. I, a, I think he handles it with aplomb. Um, and B, uh, he would never stick his chest out because he and I often talk about, you know, Actions speak louder than words. Just go and do your job and be good at it, and folks will recognize it. So I think he uh, he just tries to be another captain around the base uh, who has a different name on his name tag, 
and uh, is getting good at his job and doing the best that he can. And, and as a father, I do not get involved because it's not my place uh, to influence what he's doing right. in his life and his career. Right. Yeah, that that always interested me in how how people handle that. I grew up on in the military. We had some of the you know teenagers whose dads were colonels or generals at the time. You thought, man, big bad colonel, those guys must be old. That's all that really meant at the time. Uh, you mentioned walking around. Back to the the topic of of toxicity and making a connection. You talked about walking around and asking questions. One of the keys I think that we, we try to talk to leaders about is it's one thing if you walk around and ask questions. Day one, when I walk around and see Captain Choquette and I'm the brand new colonel, hey, Captain Choquette, how are you doing today? My answer, his answer is probably going to be doing great. Thanks, sir. In order to get to the point where you where you were able to get in what you were talking about, that goes back to what you mentioned about being a relationship. It takes time. It, it, it's, it's like a dating relationship. You don't really have a good fight until you're about five or six months into that. A lot of that's because you're still just trying to be nice and feel each other out. You don't have that trust built to where you can truly say what's on your mind and truly, uh, truly say what you feel. And you mentioned your toolkit. So you're walking around building that relationship, the ways that you build relationships. How much of that came comes from just who you are versus how you were trained in the army, uh, in the reserves, on active duty, uh, the academy, or just the experiences that you've had up to this point in your career? I'll tell you 100%. I think it largely has come from the way that I have grown and, and was taught and mentored as a leader. I feel like I probably had zero of those skills when I became a second lieutenant in the Army. Um, it, was, it was bred into me and, and things that I learned along the way. Uh, and, and you learn them in all places, right? You don't just learn them in the military. A lot of those skills I learned from my kids from my wife, from my friends, from listening to senior leaders. You know, when you talk about mentoring folks and listening to them and, and building on culture, uh, what I learned from my wife was how to listen, right? There's listening and then there's listening. And, and to truly listen, you have to sit there and be in the moment, close your mouth, hear the words that people are saying and internalize them. And, and General Goldfein, the last chief staff of the Air Force, I think he was the one that coined the phrase squint with your ears, right, to actually sit there and listen to what folks are saying. And then not only to listen, but to go out and try to do something about it. So that's how you build trust with your subordinate leaders and your folks is to listen to what they said, write it down in your little book, stick it in your pocket and take it back up to the office and say, hey, what can I do about this? How can I make this better for my airmen or help them out? Uh, you know, from my kids, I learned the, the cultural differences. I, I have one who I talked about as a captain, but I still have two teenagers at home. And in some ways, I absolutely do not understand how they look at the world. It's such a different prism than you and I look through. But I'm learning on a daily basis what their prism is like. And that helps relate to young airmen and what's important to them uh, because perceptions matter. Um, and, and you need to understand what's important to them in order to get them to react and, and provide, like you talked about, that positive reinforcement about why it's important, what we do and how to get after it. Uh, so my, my kids have taught me a lot about how to listen to what they're saying, how to look at life through their lens and, and how to recognize what's important to them. Uh, it's just uh, every day. And the other way that I learn uh, is by reading, you know, and there are a ton like you have here a podcasts, uh, books, whether it's in business or military that talk about uh, methodologies to, to get after these things. But uh, 
you know, if you trust your intuition, take all those things in your toolkit and get after it, uh, you'll have success. And more importantly, if you're trying, people recognize that you're trying and that you care and they're going to try and help you be successful. I, I always, um, as I mentored my son in his now nascent Air Force career, told him, hey, take care of your people. Let them know that you care, that you're working hard for them, and they will not let you fail. They will not let the mission fail, and they will not let the unit fail because they want the unit, and they want you to win. You talked about, well, one, having a captain's son, teenagers, and not connecting or being very difficult to understand the differences. We have, I think, probably three generations, depending on how you look at it, all working together in the Air Force. Uh, we've got you know, the, the Gen Xers, uh, the Millennials, the Gen Zers. I still am baffled that there's people that were born in the 90s that are now in the Air Force uh, running wars and making decisions. And one of the things that I think I've seen since I've gotten out is the younger folks will always say, man, those old guys, they don't get it. Those the old colonels, the generals. And what do we say as colonels? Those young guys, they don't get it. And so oftentimes we were focused on the what that was different as opposed to what you just said, which is truly listening to them to understand why the differences, because some might be legitimate or just the way they were raised. Electronics, for example, some kids may love text messaging and emailing more than they like getting up and talking to people because they spent their life texting to each other. I remember my father told me when they on the telephone when they first got a telephone. His father said, "This is going to be this is going to ruin relationships. People are going to pick up this telephone and talk to people and not have relationships." I think we say the same thing about texting or gaming, um, but I, I often tell them when I get a chance to talk to people that the what's we focus on that that divides us as generations. When we start to listen to the why, that helps to unite us a little bit, and then when we truly understand the individual, the who, then we can we can really connect with people. I want to go back. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're you're 100 right. And and uh, you know, for years, I find my found myself kind of turned off by some of those generational things, the electronics and all these things, because I thought it was deleterious. It was taking away from relationships. But I've come to recognize that those are tools, and and that's how those folks relate. And and when you're turned off by those things or attitudes, you always have to go back to the most important thing to to reground yourself. Hey. These airmen are here voluntarily. They raised their hand and said, I want to serve. And they're there because they want to be and they want to do well. Start there and build from that. And this generation of young airmen is smarter, stronger, and faster than ours ever was. And we're in great hands. Uh, so just learn how to motivate them and lead them and, and get them to move out and you'll win. You mentioned them being a lot smarter, and I actually believe they're also significantly more resilient than we were. They understand the options. They understand that there's other ways to get around things, and I truly believe most of them believe that one one hiccup, one mistake is not going to ruin your, your life. I think what oftentimes happens with those that, that don't show resilience or that turn to other means, whether it's suicide or isolation, uh, they just feel back to your safety that they don't feel comfortable enough they don't feel safe enough to to say i need help to say i'm hurting uh to say i i need something that i there's something going on that that i can't handle and i think all that brings it full circle to the the safe environment um not to not to delve on and talk about suicide but it is a thing it's a problem that we have in society it's a problem that we have in the air force how do you think the air force 
prepares leaders to handle either suicides or attempted suicides. And, you know, we always say if somebody has these indicators, we need to get them to mental health. Let's get them to the chaplain. But what happens when that doesn't work? How do you feel we have done preparing leaders? And is there anything else you think we need to do to make sure leaders can handle the what happens next? Yeah, I think that uh, we as a service do a fairly good job at what is a really hard uh, thing to deal with. It's a tough topic. And, and quite frankly, there's no playbook that you can hand to any leader to say, here are all the things that you do when somebody in your unit chooses to take their life. Uh, because it's an unnatural act. And on both a rational and emotional level, it's just very tough to deal with. So I think we do a good job of outlining, hey, here's the process that you go through uh, when this happens. But it's the emotional piece that's tough that just takes experience, emotional IQ. And again, to fall back on the relationship bit, when you're dealing with a, a unit that is hurting and folks that are hurting because they've lost someone close to them, if you don't have a baseline relationship and trust with the folks in that unit to start, it's hard to try to build it now uh, we're in, when they're in that place. So uh, to your point about resiliency, the way you create a resilient unit is to build that matrix, that lattice work of relationships already in the unit so that it's able to bounce back quicker when something like that happens. Because quite frankly, you know, post-suicide, you're not dealing sadly with that individual anymore. You're dealing with the survivors. It's all the folks that are still around who knew this man or woman and are deeply affected. And uh, you just have to be there for them. You have to take the time, again, listen to what they're going through, uh, empathize with them, uh, get them tools, which we have. We have significant amounts of tools now to utilize out there and that take the time to work through it and get past it. And oh, by the way, keep doing the job because the mission never goes away. Uh, so you just continue to build on that relationship that hopefully you fomented along the way. That always seems to be one of the toughest challenges. And uh, you and I both have, there's a friend of ours and, you know, how do you deal with the suicide, then get people ready to go out the door without seeming insensitive, without seeming like you don't get and understand the feelings that are happening. But at the same time, you know that our nation, other nations are relying on us to get people out the door to go downrange uh, and, and do the job. I often say leadership is hard. Uh, it's not complex. It's just hard. It just takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of grooming and learning. You mentioned before that uh, you, you credit a lot of who you are today to being mentored and, and led and, and developed. What was it specifically, if you can put your hand or your finger on one or two things that you were mentored through that allowed you to develop into the person you are, the leader you are, if you had to be the mo if you had to talk about or identify the most um, significant aspects of mentorship that helped you or developed you? Sure. Um, I don't know that I can put my finger on exactly what it was or, or how it happened because it's a process and it happens along the way at so many different levels. I guess I could put my finger on a, a couple of things along the way though, uh, both, both, uh, both people stuff and process stuff. And again, going back to the, the kit bag that I had both as a, as a soldier in the army, as a reservist in the air force reserves and as an active duty uh, airman, I, I think one of the biggest things I, or a couple of the biggest things I learned from my mentors 
as a soldier in the army were, um, A, you know, you lead from the front. Uh, you're the tactical expert and you don't let anybody in your unit do anything that you wouldn't be willing to do. Uh, and you stand out in front and move out and you, and you use those troop leading procedures that they give you. And the troops are first. Uh, you take care of their needs and then you take care of your own. And that builds that trust that we were talking about. And again, it's important at every level. Airmen see that. They feed off it. Actions speak louder than words. They understand that when the boss cares about what's important to them and taking care of them, it matters. So I, I learned that from all of my mentors along the way uh, in the Army. And, and I also learned in, in the Army and, of course, carried into the Air Forces, you know, there are two types of respect out there. There's respect for the rank, and you have that the second you walk in the door with something silver or gold on your shoulder but there's the respect that you earn. And that's the most important one of all, because people will do what you say if you have the rank, but people will do what you say with excellence and move out and, and, and go the extra mile if they have that respect that you've earned uh, from them because of who you are as a person and as a leader. Uh, from my Air Force mentors along the way and the, and the culture that I experienced, I think the biggest takeaway and the biggest change that I witnessed in going from the Army to the Air Force uh, was the power of brutal honesty and the power of the debrief, right? When you actually walk into a room and you take that silver or gold thing off your shoulder, you throw down your rank and say, hey, we just flew this sortie today and we did some things well and we did some things not so well. And when the young A1C who was sitting in the left seat with a 50 caliber gun in front of him says, hey, sir, hey, major, you really suck today doing this maneuver. You know, when, when, when he has the gumption to stand up in front of a room with 20 people and tell you that, that's powerful. That creates a culture of excellence, a culture of and a unit that wants to get better and improve and be the best at their craft and, and compete and win. So I, I took that. And, and the second piece that I took uh, was uh, what we talked about earlier, the, the culture that we're creating in our Air Force now of innovation, uh, of expansion of capabilities, and of max performing the jet, right? From the senior leader down saying, hey, here's what we need to get after as an Air Force. I can't do all this stuff at my level, says the four-star. I need you guys to move out and execute, taking that to heart and doing that. And you hear our, our newest chief of staff, General Brown, saying the same thing accelerate change or lose. If we don't move out faster and take these technologies and things that we have uh, and, and figure out how to utilize them and max perform our units to accomplish our mission, we literally will lose. So subordinate leaders need to take that to heart and move out. Uh, you talked about uh, leadership. It's, it's hard. It's it's just not stuff that's in a book. You know, you can't just take an AFI, an Air Force instruction, and open it up and read it and say, here's how I lead my unit. If you could do it that way, airmen could run squadrons. It takes experience. Uh, it takes judgment. It takes uh, trust-building relationships and all those things that we talked about. So subordinate leaders need to take the senior leader's message, all that leadership toolkit that they've got, and move out. Because the senior leaders will tell them when to stop or slow down, but very rarely have I seen that. Usually I see a big thumbs up and keep on doing it. Uh, so the, the Army, excuse me, the Air Force taught me that is, hey, move out, take mission and intent, uh, innovate and, and go do bigger and better things because that is how we as an Air Force are going to win. Yeah, moving out and, and owning the risk. That's one thing that I, 
I believe comes with trust is that our, our airmen, once they truly trust us as leaders, once they truly trust the organization, once they truly feel resourced and equipped, we'll buy a lot of that risk and we'll own the risk. You, you talked about the debrief and I often, whoever is in the aviation community or whoever does regular debriefs and has that standard knows the debrief room is a safe place. You mentioned that airman with the 50 cal has no problem and is expected to tell you as the aircraft commander when you suck to that day, when you put their life in danger, when you need to improve for the unit. Why do you think that the debrief room is safe, but that that debrief culture, that safety of being disruptive, of respectfully, of course, calling a spade a spade, doesn't extend beyond that that debrief room? And we always say, let's pretend this is a debrief as opposed to saying, this is just our culture. Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a great point. Uh, and so two things, one, I think as a, as a leader or commander of a unit, you have to set that culture, but two, that's hard. And, you know, you and I come from operational backgrounds where it's, uh, you know, not only a part of our culture, but it's expected that you do those things. We, we live in a really diverse air force and now United States space force. We have these vast mission sets that run everywhere from the person who straps on an F-15 to the person who runs a personnel office or sits in a room doing cyberspace operations or remotely piloted aircraft. So it, it, it is hard to say, hey, this is the blanket culture that I want to imbue across the entirety of my organization because all those people and all those different disparate parts of the organizations have their own cultures and, and live a different reality every day. So I think we need to find a way to inject that in the vernacular and in the, in the way that those folks understand. But you're right, it's not just Air Force operations that do that. We do that, that soldiers do that, Marines do that. They call it an after action report. It's all about the unit getting better. So it's about the leader finding a way to be introspective, not only with themselves, but with their unit, capture those things and then uh, implement them and make it better. And I, I think, again, the only way that you do those things is leading from the front, taking the organization, running those type of operations at your own level, and then asking them to take it down echelon and, and move out and, and learn and get better. Uh, I'm continuing to learn from you, even though I'm sitting retired. You should see my notes. I got about two pages of notes here, so for which I appreciate you. Uh, as we start to wind down, 27 years, correct, if, I, if my math is correct, in the, 27 and a half years. Um, you got it, Absolutely. You talked about being mentored. You've obviously had success as a leader and coming up through the ranks. Can you think of either the best or the worst leader that you've had? Don't don't need names necessarily. Um, but either the best or the worst leader that you've worked for and the impact that they've made on your leadership style. Yeah. Um the first thing I would say right out the gate is I probably learned as much or more from the worst leader as I did from the best leader, right? You, you, uh, you learn what to do and what not to do. Um, so I, if your question is what were those key pieces that I learned or how did I learn them from the Absolutely. best and the worst leader? I think, uh, yeah, I think from the worst leader, um, I really just learned about the type of things that we're facing in the service today, which is toxic leadership. It's that if you, if you have somebody at the top of an organization that is ineffective at communicating with their folks, can't build a relationship 
uh, and is even uh, an obstacle to the success of the mission. Um, it's just, it, it, it goes downstream and affects everything that unit does. And it's important for us as leaders, as I talked about earlier, to excise that from the unit uh, and remove it. Because if you don't, what folks above that person in the organization has, have done is says, this behavior is okay. We recognize that it's not good, but it's okay and we're going to leave it there. So you've just set a new standard, a new benchmark for the unit. Um, and it's substandard and they're gonna perform substandard. Uh, so, so I'll, you know, I, I learned uh, that you have to get rid of those folks. You have to heal the wounds. You have to fix things and get them back uh, where they need to be. I have a ton of examples of good leaders, both in the Army and the Air Force, and I don't know if I could put my finger on any one of them uh, that uh, most influenced me. But one of the important things that we haven't touched on that I did learn from each and every one of those uh, also was the importance of building the next generation and sharing their experiences, just like we're doing now, right, is, is the importance of mentorship. A lot of those guys and gals looked at me and I saw myself as just an average Joe who was performing every day and doing what I was required to do in the unit and saw something and took the time to step aside with me and say, hey, let's talk about what do you want to do? What do you want to be? Uh, you know, what do you want to be in the Air Force? And what do you want to be in the Army? And let me share a couple things with you about how I think you're doing and, and how I think you're being successful and, and what we can do. And were it not for them, I would not be here today. I'm, I'm quite convinced that the reason I'm here today is that some folks took the time, the extra time to help me out and show me what was possible because I never really thought it was. None of this was ever on my scope. I was excited to get beyond captain in the army and, uh, and get to, to lead a platoon and command a company and never would have dreamed that I could uh, be where I am today. And I, I attribute a hundred percent of that to the support of my family and those mentors who took care of me along the way. So it's come been on me now uh, to pass that forward and, and mentor folks and take care of them and, and recognize the greatness in people and try to help them along the way. And, uh, and those of us in this business love to do that. And developing our bench, as you mentioned, developing our successors, making sure that our successors are ready is key and, and argue one of the most important things that we do in leadership. You mentioned the mentors that you've had and the way that they've mentored you. Sometimes when I, when I get a chance to talk to folks, we don't teach people how to mentor. So when we tell somebody, hey, I need you to go mentor, I need you to go develop this individual, they may look at us and say, well, I, how do I do that? And I think sometimes professionally, not just the Air Force, just uh, probably in industry as well, we assume because you have experience that you now know how to mentor and how, and how to develop. So from your experiences, the mentors you've had, the mentorship that you are doing, what's one or two nuggets that you would give to people who are expected to mentor that they can put in their toolkit of how to mentor? That's great. A great question. And I think uh, oftentimes where we fail in creating that culture and to your point, teaching people to do it is we make it too complicated. To me, mentorship is this. It's a conversation, it's communication, it's talking. And the, the key nuggets, the rocks will come out of that conversation. 
Uh, and so the key is to take the time to do it. If you do nothing else in mentorship, put it on your calendar and set some time aside to talk to your subordinates and just sit down because we often fail at that. That's, that's the first piece. And then the second piece is just to keep it simple. And uh, there are forms out there. There's books about mentorship and there are things that ask questions and you can run down a list and it becomes very complicated. It becomes very systematic. Um, I, I My technique is three up, three down. I've used it for 20 plus years. And I, I walk into a room with my sport and say, hey, when you come to have our mentorship or our feedback session, I want you to tell me the three things that you think you want to sustain about you and the three things that you want to improve. And we're going to talk about it. And the first time I just listen to their list. And then the second and succeeding times after that, I have my own list and we compare our lists and see how close they are. And, and that's now a great feedback session because it just seeds the conversation. And we're talking about leader subordinate. We're talking about performance and the unit and the mission and how well we're doing. Uh, and, and that's mentorship in its simplest form. So I guess my push for folks would be two things. Number one, just do it. Make the time and communicate. And number two, have a simple, easy system because it's not complicated. People just want to talk. And once you get talking, you'll share with them those things that are important on how to grow them as leaders. And as soon as they feel comfortable with you, they'll sometimes they won't stop talking. And and that's exactly where you want to be and where all the lessons the lessons happen. Absolutely. As we round it up, wind it up, I, I do have to ask, and I think I've heard this story before, but for for the listeners, started out the Air Force Academy, commissioned into the Army, and then realized at some point that you either made a mistake, life was better back on the blue side, or you just had to had to change. So if you don't mind, what was your what was your decision point and why did you decide to come back to the Air Force uh, from your, your army your army greens? Sure. I, uh, first of all, uh, as, as crazy as that career path is, I wouldn't change any of it because to our conversation that we're talking about that leadership kit bag, I've got stuff in my kit bag from all those different places and things that I would have never learned had I not been an army platoon leader or a battalion intelligence officer or a flight ops officer or, or a Stanaval uh, chief in the air force. It, it, everything happens for a reason and, and hitting all those places gave me different things in my kit bag. But I, um, as I, as I got towards the end of my army career, uh, or that portion of my career in the army, it was just some tough times those days in the army. It was the, it was going into the mid to late nineties and we were doing more with less. And, uh, we, we, as an army were struggling and I was struggling as a, as a leader and also, uh, to be brutally honest, knowing that in my army career, I would be diverging from a career flying airplanes, being a helicopter pilot into one where I was going to be doing a lot more staff type work and leadership, which was good, but I still had a great love of flying. Uh, so I, I, I knew that I wanted to stay in the military. I didn't think that I wanted to stay in the army at the time. And so I just started doing some exploration and an opportunity presented itself where I was able to come into the air force reserves, become an air force rescue pilot, uh, flying the mighty, mighty pave Hawk, and uh, and I, I took it and it it just worked out well for me. Um, I was able to move to Tucson, Arizona, where I, where I met my wife uh, and I got to learn what it meant to be an Air Force reservist, which has really paid great dividends as a as a regav active duty airman as well to understand that system, because we rely so heavily on the air reserve component. Um, 
But I, to be honest, I was just at a point in my career where I wanted to do something different. I wanted to continue to serve and uh, maybe just go back to that cool blue uniform. So uh, it worked out. And uh, here I am uh, everywhere along the way from Army to reserve to active duty. Oftentimes folks have told me, why are you doing that? That's so non-standard. It's not going to work out for you. Uh, but here I am, you know, it has worked out. And uh, I think uh, the lesson learned there for me on introspection was do what you love, do what you want to do, do it well. And it's just, it will all work out. Well, sir, I appreciate your time. You know, I started this uh, about a year, year and a half ago with the intent of fixing what I saw was a gap between leaders and those of us being led. So it was just all about making connections between uh, senior leaders around the world, not just Air Force and the airmen. In order to do that, you've got to have a, a, somebody who's willing to be transparent and authentic. So I truly appreciate uh, you. And I will tell the audience what you, what you've heard uh, is the real general Shaquet, the real Sean Shaquet, um, nothing hidden and nothing that is uh, that is general officer speak. So for that, I truly appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I hope that you guys get a chance to do some skiing. We we're going to the mountains to go skiing. So um, I haven't really been on skis since I was in Utah in 2008, 2000, no, 2010, so a decade. So if I if I talk to you after the holidays and I've got my EC, my ACL repaired, you'll you'll know why I was on the skis. But I uh, hope you guys have a great Christmas, sir. So uh, last shot, last words over to you. Thanks for your time today. Hey, thanks. I'm excited to be here. First off, have a great time on your ski trip and uh, recognize that uh, part of that old word that you were talking about is things break and don't bend as well as they used to. So be careful out there on the slopes. Uh, this is exciting for me uh, to be able to just share. Um, you know, what I've learned along the way, um, and, and, and who I've become and, and what I hope our airmen all have the opportunity to become. And, and, you know, you hit on a key word there, the tail end of it, and that's authentic and authenticity shines through every time you stand in front of your airmen and you're trying to build trust, like we talked about, and you're trying to set culture in a unit and create an environment where people feel safe. You have to be authentic. You have to be who you are. Cause if you're not airmen and soldiers see right through that. Uh, so I, I hope and I endeavor to, to be authentic in what I do and build relationships and trust inside the unit. And uh, I, I think if you just come from a place of, hey, I'm here to serve just like you are. I'm, I put my pants on one leg at a time like you do every morning. I'm excited to be here. I want to be here. I love this unit. I love this Air Force and I love what we do. That will shine through and uh, people will be willing to follow you. So. Um, I, I wish you the best of luck in continuing to do these uh, podcasts. It's really neat to see your success, uh, both in as I witnessed it and now out of uniform and uh, share some great leadership ideals with your uh, with your your readers and your listeners. So thanks for having me on. It's been an honor. Great, sir. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, hopefully I get to see you in person sometime when we get through uh, COVID. Uh, I guess there's hopes for the vaccine. And I know your, your wife is, is intimately involved in that. And uh, it's, it's time for something different. We're ready for 2021, I think. So thanks for your time. For the audience, thank you very much for listening. As always, I look forward to your feedback. And if there's anything you have directly for General Shaquette, uh, I'm more than happy to, to relay the information to him or see if he's willing to connect. But thank you very much. Merry Christmas to everybody. Lead them well. The Leadership Domain is a place where a set of interdependent values, principles, and skills come together in order to produce the optimal environment for developing the leadership, followership, and teamwork skills necessary 
for a healthy organizational culture. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the Leadership Domain Podcast. Lead them well. Scott Soup Campbell is a national hero. He's a retired Air Force fighter pilot with over 25 years of Air Force service. He led at all levels up to and including Wing Command and served as an instructor at the Air Force Weapons School. My friendship with Soup started in 1991 at the Air Force Academy. He's always been one who excelled and stood out amongst his peers. I had a blast today sharing leadership thoughts with Soup, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this leader. I especially enjoyed his critical thoughts on the difference in asking for feedback and seeking feedback. We also deep dive into how to accept, quantify, and take risk as a leader. And Soup also explains why soft skills, being who you are and not who your team thinks you should be, and follow through are keys to developing leadership trust.